Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Is that good? Yes, sir! I know who I am! Did IQs just drop shot? I could have been. I have planned. I like this All shit. It is a lost will. You know it's Dance off, bro. It is your Me and Welcome to the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Atlantic Screen Connection Podcast with Jason and Lee. I'm Jason. I am Lee. And for this week, we get to start with my good mood, finally. (laughs) No more jaded Jason. (laughs) This week, I am born again because I got to sit down and watch two Paul Thomas Anderson movies, namely Heart 8, a.k.a. Sydney and Boogie Nights, Uh, two movies that I fucking adore. Yeah, we're going to be having a blast today. And I think you were talking to me last week, Lee, and said to me that uh, this was your first time watching Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So just... Yeah. Roundabout, did you have a pleasant experience without getting into too much detail? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to you don't know what to expect when you're told this guy's famous for reasons that you can't visually see. You know, like right. I've never seen I've never seen one of his films, so you know, like uh, what am I to expect? What's what's brilliant look like? You know, <laughs> what does visionary look like? So I didn't really know what exactly to expect at all. I will say, in broad terms, I was surprised. It's hard to say you don't like them. I mean, specifically these two films. I really enjoyed. I would. I don't know if I err towards greatness, kind of, but I, I would definitely say. No, I understand. Structurally, just fun films. I enjoyed watching, and I will remember for a long time. And what more can you ask for a film? <laughs> yeah, exactly. These, these, in my opinion, these two films are his most accessible. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see where we go from there. But yeah, uh, we just also wanted to quickly uh, put a little disclaimer out. Uh, Lee and I will be absent next week. There's a big conflict in in, in schedule right now i am uh still a little bit swamped in work which is <laughs> a sad thing right now and lee's going to be out of town we tried our best to try to put the, a show together but we will be back most likely i think we, we have scheduled for the week that we will be back is going to be for yeah it's, it's going to be for jack reacher never never look back is that what the sequel's called <laughs> yeah Never Look Back, which is a perfect title for a sequel. That means they're basically telling you don't watch the first movie because it's going to be exactly the same. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So I'm going to definitely be watching the first movie and then going to be watching that. Oh yeah, it's just it's fun to me because I, I enjoyed the first Jack Reacher. I remember liking it. Yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to this next installment. So we're we're sorry in advance for not being able to to be there uh, next week. And so in order to kind of just so that we can keep the Paul Thomas Anderson retrospective uh, in line with what we want to do, we are going to be skipping what did you watch this week, uh, right. and we'll bring that back with Jack Reacher when we get back to our normal schedule. So every second week we're going to be talking about Paul Thomas Anderson. We're going to launch directly into his movies i think that what i'd like to do right now is just plug in the trailer for uh sydney uh let you guys chomp down on that if you haven't watched it yet press pause on the on the show go watch it and then come back and sit down uh to hear what we have to say about it so without further ado here's the trailer if i were to give you 50 dollars, what would you do with it i'd eat how long can you eat how long can you live on 50 dollars I don't know. I would bet not very long.
It's always good to meet a new friend. Oh, you took care of him? John is a very old friend. I think he's pretty adorable the way he follows you around and looks up to you. Hello. Hi. I don't do anything that I don't want to do. You understand? Says you remember, Jimmy. Yeah! Friend lives up there. I saw you playing crap over the original Doom. Bet the hard eight for a thousand and you pressed it to Stupid bet. He thinks you don't like him. I don't. I know some things about Atlantic City. You walk around like you're Mr. Cool, Mr. Wisdom, but you're not. You're just some old hood. Please do not probe over to me. I love you, Sid. And please don't tell John what I've done. So you think what? That you can just walk through this life without being punished for it? Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Samuel L. Jackson. Hard Eight. Excellent. I hope you guys enjoyed the trailer for Sydney or Hard Eight. Sorry, I'm calling it by the name. <laughs> it's the same fucking movie. Yeah, I, I, only, so, I only learned about this uh, just before we started the show, actually. So we should clarify that. The original screenplay, the original movie, and even the edited version of that original movie were all called Sydney. And then, last minute decision to try and sell the film in a live-die-repeat sort of style. They changed the name to Hard Eight. And uh, that's all I knew of the film. That's all I knew it was called. So this is a total revelation to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, yeah, it was hard to sell under the name Sydney, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had a lot of trouble with uh, one of the producers called Robert Jones on the film. And um, I mean, the first cut of Anderson's film was two and a half hours long, and he wanted to keep it that way. But it was a very very difficult sell. I don't remember what festival he was having trouble at. Anyway, they trimmed it down to the version that we have now, which is an hour and forty minutes. So they cut literally an hour out of the movie. And so because they wanted to maybe sell it more as a, a gambling picture, they uh, decided to put slap the title Hard Eight on, which um, Anderson didn't particularly like, and he actually disliked the movie for years, but apparently he's come to like it uh, quite a bit from uh, from now. I was going to say, I hope so, because if there's one thing I liked about this film that I think is hard to debate, I would say it's its brevity. <laughs> you know? I actually incredibly appreciate that we spend just enough time with these characters, but yeah. not too much. You know? I feel like the longer we could have spent in this world, eh, a little more unraveling would have happened that I don't think we needed, yeah. per se. But maybe we should do a rundown of what the story's about. So, the film Sydney follows a man named John, who is sort of down on his luck and picked up by a mysterious stranger from Las Vegas called Sydney, who offers to give him money and teach him his ways in order to sort of make a living for himself. Eventually, you know, they form a friendship. The film jumps then, two years later, to see that they've sort of made a living for themselves in Las Vegas, and it more or less just explores the ins and outs of their of their lives and a couple of events that happen when they live in and out of these casinos. Without going into much further detail, that's pretty much it. In fact, I, you know, even if we told you what happened next, that's pretty much it <laughs> okay so anyway spoiler alert there you go from here on out it's just going to be us 
dissecting the movie for what it is. All right, so cool. Uh, so let's first and foremost then get into... Uh, did you like the picture? I uh, I really liked the picture. Far more than I thought I was going to after maybe the first five minutes because uh, the intro really scared me a little because oh, okay. it felt amateurish in a sense that it was literally for the first five minutes uh, like a table conversation that any stage play or budding screenwriter does to sort of establish characters or plots and I, I i you know in the wrong hands and it's more often in the wrong hands than it is in the right hands that makeup that setup just doesn't work for me i just i find it lazy at the same time though the scene hadn't ended before i flipped at least not 180 but 90 degrees on the matter because it had a favor in having incredibly interesting characters right off the bat and right. a little mystery about who they were and what this was that i would say don't really get explored <laughs> but even still i enjoyed our introduction and after that point i ended up really enjoying the film and specifically because of these characters right uh so that's yeah generally my take was on the up after the first five minutes which i understand could be entirely off-putting to people who you know if they get that far and they go Ish, don't know right good news after the first five minutes it gets better <laughs> i i really appreciated the first five minutes of the movie it's, really it, it really got me into it I like the the first tracking uh, shot where we're we're actually privy to uh, seeing John C. Riley leaning up against the coffee shop. And you have the coffee shop up on top on a giant giant billboard, like it's a trucker's stop, right? Mm. And seeing Philip Baker Hall kind of just enter the uh, the scene, and you only see his reflection in the door. I thought mm-hmm. it was a clever way of introducing this guy. Like it's like a ghost that's coming back yeah, from something, definitely. you know. And I thought characterizing him that way was very very efficient and. And interesting where he was actually going to be this guardian angel showing up in a door window <laughs> yeah, yeah. to come help this guy that's down on his luck. So I was like, wow, this is kind of interesting. It feels like a fairy tale a little bit. And I also was having fun listening to the audio commentary of, of Sydney. And Anderson mentions that it took him about two weeks to write the script. Sure. And the funny thing about what he says is that he says that if you are sitting down to write a script and you don't know what you're writing, then put two people in a coffee shop and have them start talking. And eventually it'll figure itself out. Yeah. He says, if, yeah. if you know one of the characters, then he'll be your guide and he'll just kind of let the story kind of evolve around him. When I heard him say that, I thought it kind of mirrored a little bit of what uh, Jean-Luc Godard used to do with the French New Wave. He used to come on set for like... Um, uh, band of outsiders or even breathless and he didn't exactly have a writing uh, written script and right. he would just not write anything he'd buy newspapers give them to the actors and he'd have them read the newspapers he'd film that but then some of the conversations that the actors would have after would end up in the movie and i thought that it would was interesting to see how anderson would kind of develop a scene based on a character in a coffee shop and what that person would talk about the same way that Godal <laughs> would kind of improvise a scene on set in the 60s while he was making his movies the whole coffee shop to me starting sydney is paul thomas anderson paying tribute to a lot of film history in terms of where his influences are so you'll have like coffee scenes in Godal's two or three things about her in band of outsiders just before the dance sequence they're in a coffee shop in vivre sa vie You'll have, I forget her fucking name. I shouldn't. It's one of my favorite films. And, uh, you know, they're in a coffee shop where she's about just to uh, mingle with a guy because she's entering prostitution and Godal films them from the back and they're in a coffee shop talking. You'll also have Truffaut's Mississippi Mermaid that has a really interesting coffee shop scene. And right. not to mention uh, Bob Rafelson's 
uh, coffee shop scene with Jack Nicholson and Five Easy Pieces. So you have this interesting aspect where the coffee shop plays a big, big part in a lot of influential movies, not to mention Reservoir Dogs at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs and also Pulp Fiction. You know, so they start at the diner smoking, having coffee and... I thought that it was kind of uncanny to see how Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson kind of incorporate these old influences into these new movies. Yeah, yeah. So for me, that's why the coffee shop sequence worked. I was looking at this and I was like, oh, Jesus, this guy knows what he's doing. So it was kind of fun. A thing that I kind of thought about the coffee shop, I I get that it's a reference. My thinking on it is, it is the neat screenwriting trick. It's If if you're not taught it, it's something you learn to do, I find. Right, okay. if If you want to write two characters and you want to get a sense of how those characters would enact with each other it doesn't have to be in a coffee shop mind but it, you want to put them in a scenario where you give them something to feed off and then have what their reactions would be to that what makes them different and then how right. they might interact against each other so you know it's it's a simple practice it's something that pretty much anybody who, who wants to write does at some point my thinking on it though is that I, I, I just wouldn't put that in the movie you know <laughs> like, okay okay but uh, at the same time that's an initial bias mostly on my part and I would feel that even if you weren't a screenwriter, if you were just a general viewer of this film, uh, there's something pretentious about opening a film where it's just dialogue between two characters. Give me a smoke, you know. I want a coffee. I'm a little sad, you know. This is how I feel. You don't know how I feel, you know. Like, everything's very easily expressed by the characters. It could be... Uh, it's it's a jump start to the, the tone of the film. Right. And that's going to be off-putting for a lot of people. And it was kind of like that for me. I right. felt like it was trying to get across a sense of cool way too early okay okay you know it's something like a sense that these characters you know they didn't have to speak much it was you know this is how real people talk that's the five we're going for which is again i thought was initially off-putting but what really turns it around the character of of sydney just initially i was so intrigued by the premise yeah that this this mysterious benefactor comes into a shop, sits the guy down, and just tries everything in his power to try to win him over, you know, and, or to help him in some way. I, I, that concept, I, it was surprisingly something I hadn't seen in a film, which is yeah. really strange. Like, kindness is not a big thing in films, you know? Even when the plot goes where it goes... Yeah, exactly. That's not what you're given at the start. And it's certainly not something I was expecting to get any resolve on. I just thought kindness for kindness sake was going to be kind of the point. But man, I I was so taken by that. (laughs) It it seems so alien to me that there could be a film where a guy just goes out of his way to help people uh, for no particular reason. Uh, I, I, that, that immediately allure me and Philip Baker Hall plays it so damn well like he just he just so interestingly expresses both like dogged exhaustion and like warm kindness that I just immediately was taking like this guy's got a fucking story man that's what's impressive I mean even Paul Thomas Anderson when he started like uh, film school uh, he used to work on television sets early on right and that's where he met Philip Baker Hall and he's always he'd always been a Philip Baker Hall fan Fan. And he right. talks about it again on the audio commentary. He says that the first thing that he went to say to Philip Baker Hall when he when he was on set to uh, like a, a, on a TV series, he walked up to him and said, "I'm going to make you a star." <laughs> <laughs> with all the, the enthusiasm of a film student, you know, and like, my God, I can't believe that people don't know who you are. And so when he was writing uh, his um, his short film, which is Cigarettes and Coffee, which he later developed into the movie Sydney, it was a, a tribute to Philip Baker Hall because he'd always been intrigued uh, in 
Philip Baker Hall and what that guy could exude as a character. Yeah. And yeah. this is after seeing him in Robert Altman's Secret Honor. It's basically one man uh, play that Altman filmed where Philip Baker Hall plays Richard Nixon. And right. if you haven't seen that, it's worth your time. It is a very strange movie, sure. but it's a really interesting character study at the same time. And so awesome. I, th- I love the fact that you're saying that you were intrigued by him because that's what Anderson was trying to go for when he was making Sydney. He was like, I love Philip Baker Hall. This <laughs> yeah. is his fucking movie. I am going to make him a star. And that's what you get from it. You watch this guy and there's so much eloquence in that man's face. Yeah, and his body yeah. language throughout the movie is beautiful. Even his, even his voice is so dulcet and like soothing. It, it's amazing. You know what? It's great to hear because nothing shone brighter than the clear love for Philip Baker Hall in yeah, this absolutely. film. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I, it's it's great to hear that that was a like that was an intention, you know, and not just something I was like, wow, they they really let this guy get away with whatever he wanted because like <laughs> they sure love him. <laughs> oh yeah, it's odd because I mean, to me, like before watching uh, Sydney, the only time I think that I had seen him because I, I watched I watched Sydney later. I mean, I'd seen Boogie Nights at this point. I'd also seen Magnolia, and I'd also seen Punch Drunk Love, and then I realized, oh shit, I haven't watched this feature of his, so I'll go back and watch. That. That. But yeah, I mean, sure. Philip Baker Hall, other than seeing in him in uh, Boogie Nights, I had seen him as the weird police librarian in Seinfeld, where he's just insane going after Seinfeld to get him to pay, you know, some, some fee, I think that it was overdue and stuff like that. So I was like, what sure. the hell is this guy? You know, I don't want to see him ever again as an actor. But then when you realize, <laughs> oh, my God, he was he was interesting on Seinfeld and funny for his intensity. He's actually a really intense actor, in my opinion. When you watch him in Sydney, you're like, motherfucker, you are amazing. And I like the way it, it sets him against John, who, yeah. by sheer contrast, and for the purpose of the story, is a doddering, uh, not too interesting guy, you know, and that is kind of into his character he needs to look pale in comparison to Sydney and uh fucking John C. Riley. I didn't realize it immediately at first that first scene I was kind of like well somebody's not catching the tone you know <laughs> by his performance yeah. but fuck man as you watch the film it unravels that John C. Riley's character he's playing a part you know he's and he's playing it damn well you know I, I was very surprised yeah here. it's the basic evolution of becoming a gambler but at the same time if you're able to hustle even and the people you're around it turns that performance into something that's actually kind of golden you know and john c Riley is 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 essentially showing that he can gamble not only with who he is but with his personality it's absolutely wonderful as a performance as it grows throughout the movie yeah definitely definitely there's a there's a sadistic vulnerability about him which is very weird to me definitely yes absolutely there's this sort of puppy dog all when it comes to sydney but all the other edges tell you there's he's just a little shaky a little seedy there's something about him that's just not doesn't it's not 100% you know adoration he's just a little bit of a dick <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that that's one of the things I, I really ad- adored about this film is that nothing is just given to you past that intro. Okay. We're not, this is not a story about a gambler who, you know, gets an addiction and fucks up constantly. It's, it's not one of those like on the nose moral tales. It's not an easygoing piece about like finding families and the, and the ones you meet and so on like that. 
there's nothing so clear cut about it. What it is 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 closer to like a bunch of interesting conversations with some slightly underdeveloped characters. I I mean I don't mean that they're underdeveloped. I just mean we're not shown their development a lot. Uh, which means that we're kind of pieced together who they are literally from what they're saying. And that that to me was a, like a fascinating process. I I loved trying to unravel who these people were. What the point of us watching them yeah. was because the film doesn't seem interested in telling us or making a story out of them to actually you know keep us invested it's more about just sort of it's almost a documentary and how it's just about a thing that happened you know yeah, yeah. It's, an, it's an instant in somebody's life only it, it happens at one specific moment that defined two years later right yeah it's exactly planting the seed of, of, of potential in somebody and then after that yeah. helping him out right and it, it's kind of funny yeah. because what you're describing to me is um, one of Anderson's main motifs throughout his entire filmography which is the idea right. of family and surrogate families yeah yeah well that definitely comes in on boogie nights that's exactly sure. <laughs> but i mean even with hall and uh john c Riley's character that is a surrogate family right so we talked about spoilers oh, yeah. earlier uh sam jackson's character essentially jimmy comes and tells us at one point that he knows that sydney killed john's father by shooting him in the face and hall probably i mean exploring what an old man feels like uh, i'm not old yet but i'm getting there where you don't want to die with any sort of regret or remorse or anything that's going to make you feel guilty for how you lived your life and leaving this guy essentially finding him at a truck stop outside with barely any money left in his pockets he feels a little responsible because he took that guy's youth away from him he's had to probably do what he had to do so you have this orphan like character and hall essentially sydney decides to be a surrogate father which is something again that we're going to explore in boogie nights a little bit later with jack horner being a father to dirk diggler so yeah yeah i thought it was cleverly handled in heart eight it's not overexposed i'm pretty sure that the two and a half hour cut probably delves probably exposes yeah, exactly. it a little more probably yeah yeah that relationship quite a bit we probably get a lot more backstory and that's and that's what i'm that's what i'm saying about the brevity being its greatest factor is that i didn't want to be told that i wanted to experience it and we are given just enough to know that these characters love each other in a very familial way without having to be outright explained by the way you're a surrogate right. father you know like it never goes that direction it's hinted at uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character hints at the you know he adores you you know you know he, he finds you fascinating he, he, to Sydney about right. John but beyond that the only thing that really references it is the fact that Sydney kills John's father and that sort of touching final phone call between John and Sydney that's sort of heartbreaking yeah. them professing their love for mm-hmm. each other you know you get a obviously that's as close to being on the nose as the film goes but even then that's speaking way more about what's not being said which in this case is he's not admitting that he killed his father <laughs> no he's not and I, I mean i would have loved to see the original script of this because i i think that anderson probably wrestled with the idea at one point like does uh, does jimmy tell john and then there, is there something that ensues does john finally decide to play sydney and he's known all along you know i mean that would be yeah, an easy yeah. way to, to to have that reversal in the end right exactly I don't know. I, 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 that there's there's something to be said about ambiguity in storytelling right. and letting us tell the the bits in between. Now this could be done like awfully. Like this, it's one of the, it's one of the trickiest things for a filmmaker to do is give us a story, leave portions right. out, and just put faith in the fact that the audience can make up the rest. Right. You know, ambiguity is a is a tough tool to play with. And here I think it's done perfectly. I the parts that we miss are just the parts we don't need. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? it's, it's a very lean film. Definitely. definitely. 
definitely. We don't need two years. I mean, I'm sure the original screenplay said two years later and that was it. Uh, we don't need that two years. I think there Anderson admits that this is a story with gaps and that's why he probably made some piece, if not initially, then eventually with the fact that the story has notable gaps in its telling. For example, we miss John and Clementine's day out to the mall. We miss all the sort of drama that goes on there. There's whole gaps. Whether it was written or not originally, that's left out for us. What you said there about Jimmy and his influences, there's definitely much more to that. There's, you know, we are whether he gets told about Sydney, I would imagine the original story would be smart enough not to just tell us, by the way, he killed your father, you know, and then we lose all intrigue altogether in the story yeah. and the revelation later on. But at the same time, there's definitely more to that relationship. There's more to how they got to know each other and the, the influence Jimmy plays and the secret times they have alone. There's definitely more there, but we don't need to know it. We can imagine it. I think that when it comes to the sort of the meaningful, you know, climax of this story and uh, that, that heartfelt conversation, that it being a, a film with gaps up until that point, that the most important things to say are cut out and that the important thing that they say is I love you, mm -hmm. that that seems ultimately meaningless next to the truth in a sense. I yeah. mean, that's a pretty big statement to say about love, I suppose, but also... Yeah, the different shades of it, right? The idea that I love yeah. you enough to not hurt you and hurt myself in the in the process. Yeah, that's exactly another thing, though. It is the better way to go as a story. Sometimes we can either just accept known facts mm -hmm. or sometimes we can just try to protect each other from things that are just going to cause us more pain for no reason, maybe. Well, yeah, but it's... There's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why we can argue Sydney made the decision not to tell the truth and that we can sort of justify that to the character yeah. is, is just wonderful storytelling. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's the Obi-Wan, you know, from a certain point of view. It's one of these father figures that essentially is saying, you'll know the version of the truth that you need to know in order to continue living as yeah. who you are. Our parents do that to us when we're growing up as well. Definitely, They definitely. hide so much shit from us because they're trying to protect us from the world. And it could actually be yeah. things that they've done or they don't necessarily like about themselves. They don't want us to be them. They want us to be us. And if that it's hiding us from them and what their true nature is, then so be it. And I think that Sydney does that very well for John. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Cool. Let's briefly touch on favorite parts of the movie. Is there a specific scene for you that stuck out? Uh, or a performance? Well, yeah, I'll go for two scenes. Right. Uh, one, I'll just very briefly talk about the, the introduction to the casino itself with uh, Sydney teaching John the ropes. I think that was a tremendous way to explore the world that they were about to spend the remainder of the film and I just that the tricks behind it the characters that embody it are all there uh, and uh, they're shown here in like shorthand you know we're given the manager who overlooks it all the seediness the suspect nature of it all but also the the fallibility you know the uh, that it has its exploits yeah. even in its corruption yeah. it, it sets a tone so perfectly and that was what you know where the the diner scene did well enough job establishing the characters that's where I, we really see them right. shine and that to me made the film. My only other, the only other thing uh, was the the inevitable. I mean, there's always a bunch of scenes that all kind of make a blur of beautiful movie making. But uh, the the final scene of um, Sydney taking Jimmy 
down, like waiting for oh, him. Yeah. To me, that was what what's so weird about seeing that scene made so many years before Drive, and <laughs> <laughs> that we have a, 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 a I mean a short film, both are short films, but a slow plotting film about characters that just out of nowhere takes a right turn into just violence, you know, like and badassery for absolutely like negligible reasons. Right. Uh, I am um, that is uh, something I I really enjoy that, and then that he just sort of dusts it off, and we get this heartwarming like conversation. To me, that scene. It wasn't important to the film, right. but it's as close to an identifiable style that Hard Eight ever has. Right, right, right. And there's something I just I find very uh, thrilling about cinema in that in that particular moment. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it is cinema. I completely agree with you. You know, on, on what you're saying right now. But I just want to go back quickly to the casino scene uh, because yeah. to me that was uh, Sydney basically showing John the circle of life. The idea that you can you go here, you work, and then after that you go punch in at the end of the day, and then you go back to work and then you punch yeah. in at the end of the day and then you go back to work and you punch in at the end of the day and then at the end of it Absolutely. he's like is this what you want to do forever and he's like I guess <laughs> not you know and so it's kind of fun because it's it's basically him teaching him what the ropes are not necessarily in the casino but in life in general you can go in this circle of life bullshit if you want to but it would be good for you to kind of get out and see something else you know it's kind of interesting how <laughs> that first element that first thing in the movie is basically saying okay you have a choice you either get in or you get out that is the perfect way to read that uh, I, I, you know, I, you know, I hadn't put it into such terms or thoughts before, but that brings the warmth and ties the whole thing together so nicely. I love that viewing of it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what about you? Favorite scenes? Oh, well, my, scene? mine is more of a technical scene. The way that Anderson... I, sure. I love how Anderson uses the camera. Whenever you're yeah. hearing mm-hmm. a good song or something like that, which in my case is heavy metal most of the time, sorry for people out there. That, <laughs> but, you know, whenever I'm listening to something, it's, it's something that soothes me. And watching a Paul Thomas Anderson movie soothes me because I am watching cinema. And one of the little sure. sequences that I, I, I adored was when we meet Sam Jackson's character for the first time, when they all go sit down at the table where... Um, Sydney's playing uh, Kino and then uh, John is going to introduce Jimmy to Sydney and they're all sitting at this table and the way that Anderson uses his camera is very very I thought it was very beautiful yeah table conversation is normally not interesting you know you'll have two powerhouse actors let's say in, in Michael Mann's Heat where you're going to have this shot reverse shot where you'll have Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and all you need is their body language and and and, um, and the conversation because it's well written and Michael Mann decided you know I don't need to make any move but Anderson himself in this scene sequence decides to have a little bit of fun because Philip Baker Hall isn't necessarily intrigued to knowing what kind of person Jimmy is, he's more interested about seeing if he's actually going to make any money. Yeah. And Anderson needs to take him out of the conversation and he does it using camera moves. The conversation between Hall and Sam Jackson starts with an over-the-shoulder shot. It's over uh, Jackson's left shoulder. And then Anderson decides to crab right and uses a focus pull into a two-shot of Jackson and Riley that are talking with Hall in the background that's now out of focus. Then they exchange a cigarette, they have this little conversation. And then once Jimmy gets a little bit of a feel for who Hall is, Anderson moves the camera back by crabbing left with a focus pull, going back to the initial position of an over-the-shoulder shot to re-establish the conversation between Jackson and Hall. I thought that that sequence just livens up the conversation, shows you a little bit of how Riley uh, and Jackson's characters interact and how Jackson might actually be approaching Hall's character from that moment on. Yeah, yeah. And so to me, it just goes to show how much of a responsible director Anderson is to be able to have that forethought 
into saying, okay, I need to kind of establish this three character conversation around a table. How can I do that with just a couple of camera moves in order to show who these people are? Yeah, yeah. And I thought it was really, really a, a fun way to do it. And so that shot to me, I, w- I was watching it again and I, I remember seeing it the first time and going like, oh, beautiful. And then I watched <laughs> it again just recently so we could do the show and I was like, God damn it, it's even better this time around. <laughs> it's so Great. And I, I like that. I, I like the efficiency of it as well. I think that you oh, know, yeah. that it breaks it into the separate the separate dialogues while also maintaining that three person structure. You know, at the table. exactly. Yeah, uh, it's it's, it's very clever. That's it. And I think uh, one of the other things that I appreciate about the movie is Philip Seymour Hoffman. I didn't think we'd uh, sneak away without a Hoffman reference. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and I think it's a great segue into uh, Boogie Nights, where Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Sydney is this extroverted, talkative guy that kind of reminds me of, of of Negranu, this this Canadian gambler down in Las Vegas now who's made millions of dollars who just won't shut the fuck up at the poker table. And so you'll have Philip Seymour Hoffman's character before Negranu actually became popular just fucking talking the entire time and just being this dick. He's an asshole, but he's fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. It really livens up a, a, a very small character scene. It's a very strange scene in the film too because it doesn't really have any bearing on what little plot there is already you know uh yeah i didn't know what the fuck to make of it i was just having a good time <laughs> exactly and i think that was the point i mean I'm, I'm it's possible that you know what he's saying is basically john and, and uh, sydney might be a combination of this guy when they were young or something like that but you know you never know just this hot-headed fucker you know Which, oh yeah again it's going to be interesting for us to explore because in boogie nights it's the complete opposite <laughs> introverted guy he plays these two polar opposite characters in movies that are back to back you know 96 and 98 where you're like how the hell did you do this this is amazing he goes to show just how great an actor philip seymour hoffman was and he's sadly missed now because his performances yeah. were really really interesting definitely definitely so <laughs> i don't know do you have anything else to say about sydney no, dear I'm, sir i am i'm happy with sydney i would recommend it to people who haven't seen it i'd say stick through the first five minutes because it can be a bit off-putting but it right. gets into itself and don't expect a plot what we described sounds like there's a lot of plot happening <laughs> there isn't there really isn't <laughs> no no it's just it's a series of events you know it's not really uh, that detailed I mean it's about a guy that's basically trying to uh, make a living in casinos and he just happens to meet a guy who's essentially his guardian angel but he's also the devil because he shot his father in the face so <laughs> that's simplification I, for you elegant there you go <laughs> you know. that closes out our conversation on Sydney or as you guys are are going to rent it part eight uh, by paul thomas anderson we hope you enjoyed this little part of the retrospective and stay tuned for our uh, take on boogie nights here's the trailer everyone's given one special thing right everyone's blessed with one special thing i want you to know i plan on being a star a big bright shining star any adams from taunts yep jack horner filmmaker i make it exotic pictures In 1977, a kid from nowhere... Maybe you think about your name. My name, yeah. Something a little pizzazz. Dirk Diggler. Good name. I like your name a lot. Had a dream of getting somewhere. Jack Horner has found something special in newcomer Dirk Diggler. So let me just pop in this A-track, and you just give a listen to what you think, okay? It was a time when disco was king. These are the ones, these are great. Yeah, those are really cool. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. Do you like my shoes? They're pretty cool. Sex was safe. Woo-hoo! 
pleasure was a business. Cut. Terrific. Nice work. And business was booming. And the award for best newcomer goes to Mr. Dirk Fiddler. Wow. Goodbye, 1979. Hello, 1980. Are you ready? But in 1980... Come on, you puppies! The party was over. You are fired! What? You're fired! <laughs> it's jealousy, it's deceitfulness, it's vindictiveness, but, I mean, God, what can you expect when you're on top? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Love this part. New Line Cinema presents... A portrait of two decades in the life of a business, the days of a dreamer, and the nights in between. Boogie Nights. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed the trailer for Boogie Nights, a uh, movie that came out in 1998. Uh, again, directed by Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson, because that's what we're doing right now. Starring Mark Wahlberg, Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Heather Graham, John C. Riley, Philip Baker Hall, and a slew of other characters. Don Cheadle's in there too. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, Jesus. This this is a really, this is an ensemble cast. Uh, and so yeah, so the story basically takes place in the 1970s in San Fernando Valley, uh, the capital of porn in the, in the 70s where people were making uh, porns apparently everywhere. And um, so yeah, it's the golden age of the porn industry uh, where you'll have mm-hmm. a guy uh, who essentially uh, is Dirk Diggler who becomes a famous porn actor because of the size of of his penis uh, a lot of people want him in the porn industry because apparently he has something wonderful just being uh, wanting to come out <laughs> into the world as jack horner <laughs> burt reynolds says so eloquently while he's washing the guy's washing dishes at the back and so yeah it's basically the rise and fall of a a man uh in the porn industry uh so lee what did you uh think of boogie night uh again I, I i didn't have much expectations on this one it's very clear right off the bat that paul thomas anderson has become the competent director with the competent statement that he wanted to be this is this definitely screams my debut you know the in, in inverted commas you know where right. the director feels i finally made a film that i could call my first film and they just disregard the previous effort yeah i agree this this screams that you know it's got everything going for it it really feels like an accomplished movie generally i really like this film i i I didn't expect myself to like it Uh, not because of the porn elements i actually thought they were uh, that was fascinating and fun uh but i didn't expect to like it because i don't know I, i i don't like rise and fall stories and it's true that's to me, the worst part of this film is the fact it's a rise and fall story. It's such a predictable narrative, and it's it's not that we can't have these stories, it's just not something I want to watch. This is like saying, Act 1, up to Act Act 1, good times. Yeah. Act 2, bad times. Act 3, some sort of middly yeah, yeah. jarring mix of the three. 
And I, I get it, and it works. Uh, it works pretty well to tell the story that needs to be told for these characters, and and also to be a sort of era-appropriate retelling of what happened to the porn industry at that time. Right. It, 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 it works really well on that level, but it's not how I like... It's not a film... It Ultimately, it means it's not a film I'm going to be re-watching anytime soon, because I just... I don't like suffering the unsufferable lows, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand. Makes sense. But ultimately, overall, I, I had a, I had a great time. I, I, I laughed. Uh, the, the low parts are genuinely fascinating. And uh, I, most importantly, like with uh, Heart Eight, I just love the characters. Uh, yeah. I love spending time with them. And I, that's that's something in these first two films with Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm very happy to see a lot of what makes great directors and a lot of critics' eyes are their capabilities with camera work and their and their sort of. The fuckery with with storytelling, and I agree, those are things I like to see too. But what really gets me is characterization. Right. I don't really care as much for a well shot film if I don't care who's in it, you know. <laughs> and this this these two have been very positive for me when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson because it gives me faith that he knows people enough. And they're not, like, robot Hollywood people either. They're kind of real enough that they can be applicable to any walk of life. I'm fascinated with how he describes and tells characters on a screenplay. And for me, this has been an overall positive start to our our, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson journey. Yeah, okay. It only gets better from here, man. Yeah, well, so I hear. But anyway, uh, your thoughts then on Boogie Nights. Um, I'll start by saying that um, I, I, I separate Paul Thomas Anderson's career into three so far i mean he's directed a lot of videos most recently for radiohead he's directed concerts he has a a documentary with johnny greenwood from radiohead uh fiona apple has always been one of his things that that he had you know he went uh prairie home companion he helped robert altman uh he was there to ensure which is why there was a gap between um a prunch drunk love and there will be blood you know he was actually helping out and trying to learn more about filmmaking and Sure. To me, the three phases that we've seen so far is that you're going to look at, at Heart Eight, Sydney, and Boogie Nights, which are going to be his Scorsese pictures. And then you'll have the middle pictures right now with Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love, which will be his Robert Altman pictures. And then after that, the two last ones, excluding Inherent Vice, you'll have There Will Be Blood and The Master, which are going to be his Kubrick pictures. Inherent Vice, I'm eager to see where it fits in because it seems like a mishmash of a lot of elements that we've seen so far from Anderson, Mm -hmm. you know, he'll have the long takes, he'll have the strange lighting that he's going to use, which are kind of homages to uh, Scorsese. And also a little bit, the way that he frames specific scenes in Inherent Vice are going to be very Kubrick-esque as well. However, with Boogie Nights, to me, this is where he feels the most Scorsese. And it's the one where he is actually saying, I, this is the side of the fence of in Hollywood. I want to fall. Right. Great. You know, you could look at like Coppola's movies from the 70s and then you'll look at like how Steven Spielberg and the blockbusters and George Lucas and and even De Palma was making trashy films and whatnot. Scorsese is the one that kind of sticks out more as the fringe director. De Palma is very competent, but Scorsese knows how to make a Hollywood picture that people are going to be, I like it, but it's not mainstream that much. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mm-hmm. feel that Boogie Nights fits that bill very well because it is Definitely. an homage to Scorsese, but it also is an homage to Hollywood itself, in my opinion, where Anderson chooses sex, Scorsese chooses violence. And to me, they are not mutually exclusive. There is a violence in sex and there is a sexuality in the violence that Scorsese portrays on screen as well. And so I think that by peppering the sex throughout Boogie Nights, the way that Scorsese peppers the violence throughout like Goodfellas, most notably Taxi Driver, and even Raging Bull to a certain extent that you're going to see in this particular picture of Anderson's, they kind of push the envelope just a little bit farther than what most people would deem accessible, but they do make it accessible through what you described earlier, yeah. the characterization that they do Absolutely. so well. It, it was it was, it was was kind of frightening, actually, that I was watching this film ostensibly about the porn industry, mm-hmm. and I was thinking, how hasn't everyone seen this? How haven't we all... Why aren't we all talking about Boogie Nights all of the time? Because this feels like it's going to be one of those films everyone should have seen, everyone can relate to. <laughs> you know, like, it's really strange. Because then it, it, it lures you in so much into its, pre, its characters that it makes you forget it's about porn, you know? <laughs> well, that's, the thing. that's what's weird. It does make you forget that it's about a, the porn industry at that time because the characters are still relatable. Yeah. They've mm-hmm. all, they're in situations we've been in. You know, I'm, I'm talking about I- emotionally, right? Yeah, exactly. Where you're exactly. like, not specifically, uh, yeah. but emotionally, definitely. We, we've been in arguments with our parents before. We've, we've tried to neglect whatever they've told us, you know, uh, it, because we thought we were doing better. We thought we knew better. You know, the tantrums yeah. that we'd go through, this idea of also experience, you know, that comes with life, the choices that you choose to make and all that. These are all relatable qualities with the backdrop of porn. What the fuck, man? You know, and the fact yeah, that you yeah, can make I, these exactly. characters relatable, you're like, oh, it's really, really, it's kind of <laughs> titillating and, and not at the same time where you're like, how can I be associating to this motherfucker? It's not. It's not yeah, cool. Yeah. It's not well, supposed exa- to be right. Definitely, and I, I love that. That's also. It's. It's funny how porn is portrayed in this film because it's awfully sterile. Okay. It's awfully cold. Uh, it, you know, it's very. Uh, it's very much a process. You know, it's and, and that's I think what supports your your view uh, that this is how they look at uh, Paul Thomas Anderson views Hollywood. Right. Because the porn here is more about the filmmaking, the art of that, and the actual the filming of the porn and the scenes in which the porn is portrayed isn't at all sexy. It's not. No. We're given almost like straight shots of it just happening yeah, yeah. just to give us like it it almost it makes us detached from the actual action itself you know and that that view is is so funny what it reminded me of it reminded me of the coens and that it captures their sort of their cynical tone oh uh, uh, and, yeah, and yeah. especially and especially their adoration for filmmaking as a as a form i i prefer anderson's view on the art of filmmaking though i i think that i don't know by our surrogate into that world which isn't actually well i mean our surrogate into the you know being a part of it world is uh dirk diggler mm-hmm. but it's jack horner who's our you know who's our visionary he's our guy you know he's the he is the medium of art in porn and in film incarnate. Right. And uh, he cares passionately about the medium. And he's our look at like the directors of that world and the, the skewed look at them. And I think there's something so warm and dignified in, in, in Jack Horner's portrayal that I don't think the 
Cohen brothers have ever really tried to portray. They they have they've done well with like portraying the people who are fascinated with film, but not the people who just embody it and get on with it mm-hmm. and and function as a person beyond it as such. Right. I mean, it's obviously it's not exactly a one for one comparison anyway. I mean, they're pretty much saying a lot of the same things around the same time as each other. I get it. I mean, but uh, you, you brought up Jack Horner. And I mean, if you look at Burt Reynolds' performance in this movie, it's probably the best I've seen Burt Reynolds be. And in the movies that, that you watch, I mean, yes, he was great in Deliverance, you know, but at the same time, when you see him, even in Smokey and the Bandit, you're like, all right, cool. Yes, he's a great actor. He's a fun actor. He's a guy that I'm not used to seeing that much of. Yeah. But in Boogie Nights, he's just like, he just owns it. Whenever he's on Definitely. screen, you're like, my God, how can I not watch this performance? It's just so beautiful how he's able to portray this guy who's a little bit, I won't say blasé about his medium, but like you said, he's passionate about it and he cares deeply about what he's producing. He does not want to produce shit. He's tired of making shit. And so exactly, he's trying to boost his cred up a little bit as well, but it just so happens that it's not the right time anymore. This is a change that's about to happen. And sadly <laughs> yeah. enough, the change is provoked by him finding Dirk Diggler, right? No, exactly, exactly. And... I mean, you know, when I was watching Boogie Nights, I think one of the reasons why Anderson chose to make this picture, other than the fact that he was subjected to it as as a, as a child, you know, being born in San Fernando Valley, Valley and, and seeing this go around his neighborhood, you know, on the commentary, I think, or even an article I read, I don't remember uh, one of the two, uh, he said that uh, <laughs> uh, whenever a van pulled up in the neighborhood, they knew they were making a porno someplace, you know, a white wow. van. And so that that's how prominent it was in his his childhood growing up i think that he does see hollywood as a place where they produce porn yeah almost you know the idea of voyeurism in a sense where the idea that we're going to pay these people so that we can just watch them do shit you know so there is a certain pornography in what we do and it's kind of funny because hollywood is a place where people have peculiar values that they think they know better than most people and I'm not shitting on Hollywood I'm not, I like I love Hollywood but they do constantly pet each other on the back you know and they swoon over their own ideas and Definitely. I think that and I don't want to assume I think that Anderson is kind of saying yeah I make porn too <laughs> and so no I, I that, you're totally right though I, 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 I that's what that's something I meant to, to sort of say about Jack Horner's character as well is that if we see him as the surrogate of the director which in this case is Paul Thomas Anderson right. and the fact he's like I want to say something with the medium you know i want to really make porn a little more than what it is today at the end of the day it's still porn yeah there's nothing you can do about that no you know it's still the gonna be is. the medium yeah, exactly. it is and that and there's it's it's so perfect a mirror image of hollywood that it can only reflect on paul thomas Anderson, given like a, a nudge and a wink at his own position and his and what he feels about the the entire um, art form itself and i i love that i thought it's, it's not entirely on the nose but it is very you know tongue-in-cheek oh definitely i mean like even when we're talking about hollywood uh, i was reading an article uh, written by um atalanta copeman pappas and she says that boogie nights is essentially a commentary on uh scopophilia and scopophilia for people that don't know is basically this idea of sexual pleasure derived from watching others when they're naked or engaged in sexual activity so the idea that it's voyeurism and i mean if you break down what voyeurism actually is it doesn't necessarily equate you know just us watching people yeah, naked it's, it's essentially yeah. Watching it's not, it's not necessarily general, perversion, right? you know, it's just yeah. it's the act of watching. We all have know, that definitely. fucking neighbor who's always checking shit out where you're like, can you please leave me the fuck alone if I want to walk yeah, around exactly. my Sometimes my it's my just nosiness. Exactly. 
<laughs> and while I don't disagree with her, I mean, like I said, I mean, I really think that Anderson's making a movie about Hollywood itself, you know, and the idea that, you know, we were talking just before the show, the idea that we, we the penis, you know, Dirk Diggler's penis becomes the center of attraction. The whole movie is about that. And she comes to the conclusion that Anderson cleverly puts the idea in people's head where it creates a whole mystery around the penis where at the end of the movie, the audience, who is not an audience that is normally going to be gravitating towards porn, wants to see the dick. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't care because I was too involved with what the hell was going on where I'm like, okay, yeah, he's got a big dick. We could see it a couple of times. <laughs> I didn't need to see it flat out. And they do put it out there. And uh, I, what I mentioned to you... I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. What I mentioned what I, to you, I was like, I, I was comfortable with the fact that it was like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction where it was just this <laughs> MacGuffin carrying the movie around. I was like, okay, fine. Anderson's making fun of this idea that I'm going to use the dick as a MacGuffin and the whole movie yeah. is riding on this guy's dick. Ha 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 ha. Tongue in cheek <laughs> reference. Yeah, yeah, but you disagreed. You, you disagreed with me. You actually said that it worked for you. I, I, I needed that. <laughs> we needed the dick. That's I needed perfect. that dick. <laughs> No, uh, yeah, seriously though. I mean, I I entirely agree. I I had not read that article you were telling me before the show, but I entirely agree. And it was something I actually thought about at the time that it, it was teasing this, and I just assumed that uh, we were never going to get it. Very much like I hadn't put two and two together, but very much like the the briefcase in in Pulp Fiction. Right. You're right. You know, we don't need to see what's in it to enjoy the the fact that it exists and its effect on the characters. I thought we were getting we were going to get a very similar treatment right. to a to fucking Dirt Diggler's dick. So, but at the same time, I was just like. God, wouldn't it just be great, you know, in, in my, in my, in the back of my mind going like, wouldn't it be great if we just had a moment? We just, we undid this and just fucking saw his dick for a while and that'd be that. Yeah. And Jesus Christ, we got it. We actually there got it. There is a payoff. Such... What did you call it? <laughs> a climax. A climax, yeah, because right? That's what you it got is. the money shot. It's, it's there. <laughs> it's actually the climax of the film. It is incredible. I mean, it, it was something, it, he does, Paul Thomas Anderson does build that tension. Yeah. I just assumed it would go somewhere, it would go nowhere because of what I was exposed right. to. But I definitely see where the teasing of it in a conventional story would expect you to, to get a, you know, a payoff. Yeah. yeah. You know, you just naturally assume the payoff's a dick. We're not getting that. Exactly. <laughs> Normally we wouldn't get So that. when we get it, it was, it was exactly what I wanted. <laughs> I, you know, and I kind of knew it and I kind of didn't, but it, yeah. I, and it was great. It made me laugh my ass off. And it, I, I was just so overjoyed that the story went there. I mean, it shouldn't be such a big deal that fucking, whoa, the reveal of a dick is is like a punchline and or anything regarding like interesting as an art movement or so right. on or like a narrative payoff. But at the same time, the mundane can be made interesting by a well-told story. Yeah. And, and this to me is as mundane as it gets. I'm just so happy with how this film wrapped up. <laughs> I like, yeah, I like, I like that I, I like the way it wrapped up because for me it wasn't even about the dick it was about the film reference that he was making that i loved yeah i, I didn't get this <laughs> but that's it to me like uh, that that scene at the end is is, uh, is taken directly from raging bull there are two sequences where you have that in raging bull it starts and ends with the same scene where you'll have uh, jake lamada uh, who's robert de niro at this point jake Lam sorry about that jake lamada is never robert de niro <laughs> 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 it's basically 
basically you have Jake LaMotta in the in the in the mirror saying, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, where you'll have Dirk Diggler being, You're the star, you're the star, you're the star. And even using the title of the film, Anderson is playing on that notion tongue in cheek again, get it? Raging bull, a giant cock, a bull's cock that's going right. to be on screen, where it, it actually replaces this boxer like character and the influence of Scorsese's there. And at the same time, it's a a calling out to Jake LaMotta was a fighter. You know, he's the guy that needed his fists in order to to make a living. And then you'll have Dirk Diggler, yeah. who is exactly like this guy. He's also a fighter. He's the guy that needs to be there. And then brilliantly framed by Anderson, that Dirk Diggler's head is not even on screen. It's exactly what it is. It, it's the penis. And that's yeah. exactly where he makes his living. Where Jake LaMotta uses his fist, Dirk Diggler loses his dick. Everyone has something special. That's the one thing that Dirk Diggler says throughout the movie. That, yeah. Everything has that one special <laughs> thing. And I love that, how he uses Scorsese uh, in that way. I, I mean, not to continue this fucking gushing discussion on my penis, but uh, I do want to point out that I also just actually love this ending from a character perspective yeah, yeah. as well. I mean, this, this to me, I don't think there was a more perfect way to wrap up Dirk Diggler's story. Right. This was, again, as I was saying, Rise and Fall, it's not that interesting to me. Okay. Okay. But as a midpoint to find his own landing with his uh with a family that like a surrogate family right. at long last that sort of accept each other for all the same reasons that they you thought they would see them get back together in this way and then to have this just this moment of of him coming back to terms of what makes him special mm-hmm. uh after losing it for so long in the film and to make peace on that level right. I just thought it was, it's a surprisingly touching moment. It, it's kind of ballsy. Yeah, it was great. And I mean, that's just one of the references I was talking about. I love that, how you pointed it out, that it brings that character arc to a close. And it brings it to a close in a way where you're like, okay, he's finally made peace with what he is, you know, where, yeah, where exactly. he fits into the world. That even in the end of the movie to kind of, how can I put it, have that closure for the character. Yeah, uh, you know, it actually helps us understand we're not that different either. Exactly. And I, I, what I liked about this against what I like about Tarantino's films, Tarantino makes films that are a little more of a pastiche on character traits. He also does delve into the familial aspect quite a bit as well. Like Reservoir Dogs, you'll have this group of people that are going to come together. Even in Pulp Fiction, you'll have these these buddies that are going to, to, to blend together because there's there's an attachment that's there. Even in Jackie Brown, you have mm-hmm. these meetings of people. Kill Bill, the group again, right? Even in Django Unchained, yeah, yeah. or in, even in Glorious Bastard, families are constructed based on common goals and things like that. And I think that Anderson, in this way, makes them a little bit more relatable, like you were talking about in boogie nights with the surrogate family when you look at how tantino construct those things yes they come together for for dumb reasons you know they're going on a bank heist in in reservoir dogs they're gangsters together in pulp fiction you know it's just it's circumstances that are bringing these ties together which makes it a little bit surreal and i understand where you're pointing out the pastiche where we can't really relate to these guys yeah however How Anderson does decide to attack the familial aspect in Boogie Nights does definitely make it relatable and less of a pastiche. So I completely agree with you on that. You know, the idea of surrogate families, even loneliness and loyalty, I think, are are present in Boogie Nights as well as in the movies. Uh, Definitely. I mean, like, what what can you say about the the relationship between Amber and Roller Girl? I mean, such a a, a strange... That's the closest to pastiche, I would say, like, the idea of surrogate family gets, but the actual outcome of that is is real. They do accept each other after that somewhat forced acceptance, and, you know, they stay together as a family. That smaller unit, they lose Don Cheadle's character, and they, they lose John C. Riley 
eventually by the end, but like they right. all go off into their own arcs. But the 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 core of the gang stick together and the, the yeah uh, that kind of close knit fabric. And uh, Amber really does look at Roller Girl and and Dirk as as these kids of hers, you know, right. But it's not played for laughs. It's not even played as a sort of sick inversion. It's actually pretty sweet. It actually says a lot about parenting as well. And that even it doesn't matter who you are as a parent, you can still fuck your kids up a little. <laughs> and in this case, it's with drugs. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of going in there. Because to me, like Boogie Nights felt a little bit like a tragedy. I mean, we could actually bring Oedipus, Oedipus Rex into this. The idea of Yocasta with, uh, with Oedipus, you know... Uh, you could actually even maybe look at um, uh, Dirk's real mother. Uh, you know, it's a very, very twisted family that Dirk actually comes from, where his father is helpless. And his mother, in my opinion anyway, wants something she can't have from him. Yeah, yeah. Which well, is a physical true. relationship, right? And so to me, there's a clear jealousy that comes from that, you know, and I'm positive that there's a psychological condition that exists because I did a little bit of research. I couldn't find anything. All yeah. I come, came uh, on was the, the histrionic mother or the borderline narcissistic mother where she's going to be all consuming of her son or daughter. And sure. in this case, I thought that the mother herself was a little bit, I'll say intense just to stay polite, but I'm positive that she did want a relationship with her own son, which actually kind of mirrors the relationship that Dirk Diggler has with Amber and a little so, bit later. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah the reconstruction of the family unit. That's not something I would have picked up initially, but I, as you're saying it, it makes perfect sense to me. You know, it's, there's definitely something there. And it's, it's, it's a better reading of that scene between uh, Dirk and his, uh, his, his birth mother right. and it kind of froze uh, that sort of the, the physical nature of sex that you know, this film is portraying as right. throws a, it throws so many other lights on it you know that it's much like the film itself it dodges the idea of porn as some sort of sexual act in itself or something you know that's supposed to be overly intimate it's often a cold right. workman's kind of relationship for a lot of the characters involved yeah absolutely. that is also portrayed in that sort of inversion with how the characters kind of want from each other that yeah that's that's pretty that, that works on a level and i think that something that ties that together is what you're saying about the initial mother scene i guess because yeah. yeah it does it kind of does say she wants something more from him uh, uh to be more and that's that's an interesting way of looking at it i never thought of it's, it that way because i picked up on it when she starts describing dirk's girlfriend at the time as a little whore. Yeah, yeah. Right? So to me, when you're kind of debasing someone in order to maybe make yourself a little bit bigger because you don't understand the situation that you're in, that goes to show a lot of jealousy. Try to put yourself above who the other person actually is. Yeah, And the fact yeah. that the mother is actually trying to tear that girlfriend down to me is because that girlfriend has something she wants and she can't have. Yeah, right? no. And so it was kind of interesting when I pieced it together a little bit as an Oedipus complex type of thing or uh, where Dirk actually does have sex with Amber, who would be his mother, and then eventually symbolically or metaphorically kills his father in the fact that when he does leave the studio after that, they switch to videotape and no longer film so that it kind of kills the porn industry, the business yeah. itself. So there's a symbolic death in the art of filmmaking that is actually pioneered by Jack Horner. So I figured that 
it, it kind of builds into that that tragic relationship that these people have with each other. Definitely. And it was kind of fun to to kind of pick it apart and go like, oh, look at that. It is kind of tragic. And that's why this movie actually kind of works for me. Where yeah, it, it yeah. plays off as a tragedy. It is, it is in, that, in that sense, the very particular fashion of saying it's even like a Shakespearean tragedy. You're, you're entirely right. And, 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 again, that's, that's a thing why I don't fucking casually watch or purposely watch a lot of Shakespeare adaptations is because I'm not fascinated by rise and fall. Right. Okay. Which yeah, is a big, a big trope sense. in Shakespearean tragedy. You know, it's a, right. Although, granted, Anderson he makes it known that this isn't a tragedy. This is a comedy, just a really sad one. Very much like exactly, Shakespearean's yeah. comedies. You know, like you know, yeah. Absolutely. It ultimately, you know, it does have something of a bittersweet ending. Yeah. Uh, and, it and ends. It ends in a marriage. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. It does end in marriage. Exactly. So, you know. So the Diggler goes back to Horner. So you're absolutely right. There's definitely some narrative that is being drawn on more because I want to know a lot about tom jane's character in this film like mm. to me that character is not a character he's like a representation of chaos in the in the in the structure of the of the story he's right. not we don't spend any time getting to know him he shows up when things are from getting already from bad to worse right and ensures that the story goes to its lowest point yeah Where, i mean that, that to me from just like from an inexperienced sort of perspective i've always found it fa- i found it fascinating because i was saying this is kind of artsy for the film to sort of start throwing in these sort of characters that don't actually mean anything right. to the actual st- like face value narrative but are in the pretense hovering around the story like a ghost you know and and, and sort of influencing the actions of everyone but the audience are never given enough information to make anything of them we start you know it starts challenging what is actually happening on screen and challenging what the story that you're supposed to be reading is so i found that fascinating i i would love to find out what where where he comes from what's his deal and what if anything that is referencing because it definitely he sounds like a shakespearean character to me he's puck he's puck from Midsummer Night's Dream. He's the guy basically who's this cherub little angel guy who basically comes in and puts a spell on everyone. Everyone gets into weird relationships that throw the story into a very tragic yet comedic way. But then after that, like I was talking about in... in um Oh, what episode were we? Seven Samurai, the forest and all that. You know, he's the one who brings the chaos upon everyone. And he's doing it because he's having fun. The story itself is based, loosely based on a true story, right? So Thomas Jane character, I, I don't, Thomas Jane's character, sorry, uh, I don't have his real name, but that guy actually existed. And even like Dirk Diggler, the guy was basically Johnny Wad, who was a famous porn actor in the 1970s, you know, basically John Holmes. And that actual scene in the uh, in the house with the uh, Alfred Molina character. Yeah, yeah. That actually happened. There was that, that murder in the hills and, and all that. That literally happened to John Holmes and that guy because it was a drug deal that went wrong a couple of people ended up dead as a result oh uh, and it was because of the john holmes uh, not the john holmes character but the thomas jane character uh who basically said you know what i'm not just here for the drugs i'm here for the money as well and he ended up in a shootout and so you know a lot of these things are actually taken from fact and i think that it's funny that anderson was like isn't this interesting that how life imitates art you know yeah it could have could have built a, a more redemptive arc into yeah, his yeah. own tragic life and downfall at that point so yeah I mean, even Anderson is going to be using 16 millimeter cameras in order to uh, to film specific interviews with Dirk Dig- the Dirk Diggler character. Those are almost verbatim from what John Holmes was doing in in interviews. You know, where he would he actually built his persona and he thought he lived specific things. 
uh, but they were all lies. Most of them were lies, right? And yeah, so yeah. even the the funny thing is, is like um, the the Dirk Diggler uh, playing Brock Landers is the same thing as John Holmes playing Johnny Wad. And you'll have a scene, and especially the scene where Luis Guzman has finally his characters made it onto. <laughs> on a porn set because he spends the entire movie trying to convince people to just let him on screen so that he can show that he's a movie star now in Hollywood and there's a scene where uh, Mark Wahlberg's character Dirk Diggler is sitting there at a bar where he's wearing this brown uh, tuxedo and a woman walks up I think who's the Amber character uh, who walks up into that scene as well uh, that is that is a remake of, of, a, of a Johnny Wad movie that came out in the 70s If right. you could probably find it online and you'll be like wow these, these frames actually match these are frame wow. for frame representations of a porn movie that was made in the 70s yeah i guess if you're gonna shoot shit you better you know just shoot shit <laughs> yeah, exactly and i thought that it was really interesting to see that paul thomas anderson went he's like you know what i'm gonna be accurate if i'm gonna portray yeah. this i'm gonna go all the way and if people decide to go where my references are at least they'll see but he's actually tuning people into porn movies in yeah i was gonna say this 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 must have been hell for people at, at the time and this it's like oh my god he's legitimizing porn oh no <laughs> Ugh. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, but I just, I wanted to quickly divert the attention into all the references that Paul yes, Anderson is making. Cause... Because a lot of the scenes that are in the movie kind of go, and I don't think, they, they play on the same types of themes that uh, Scorsese is playing. Uh, like, uh, you talking to me scene in Taxi Driver, there is a mirror shot of Mark Wahlberg's character, Dirk Diggler, in the mirror, kind of just doing his karate moves. Yeah, doing his like karate. Yeah, so, exactly. And at the funny thing is, is that he's grabbing his gun. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, too, yeah, right. You know, and it's kind of funny because you're like, oh god, I can't believe that he's actually kind of playing on the term gun at the same time as where oh De Niro is doing it in the mirror. You're talking to me, and it's like, you know, you'll have Dirk Diggler in the mirror just looking at himself, going like, yeah, you know, and he has his gun. So that was kind of cool. Brilliant. I liked. Um, there's a wonderful, for lack of a better term, the Zolly shot. I don't know. If there's another way. It's one of those shots that uh, that uh, Hitchcock de- developed for Vertigo, where he actually pushes the camera forward and then he zooms out in order. Yeah. To give yes. that, that perspective in yeah. Goodfellas in 1990 Robert De Niro is sitting at a at a booth again in the coffee shop uh, uh, with, uh, God. <laughs> with Ray Liotta's character just there and then you'll have that two shot where you have that zoom out he actually uh, Anderson reuses that shot in the diner sequence with um, Amber Jack uh, Roller Girl and Dirk all sitting in the coffee shop where he just brings the camera down in order to create that that sequence it's, you know his two shots are very Scorsese like yeah yeah in, in the movie itself when you're watching Boogie Nights there's a lot of whip pan transitions where he's just like, okay, we're going to change the sequence now, you know, and so there's an overabundance of whip pans that are going to be used in movies like Casino and even in Goodfellas. Uh, yeah, so yeah. He's, he's using that. His use of lighting, uh, a lot of lighting that Scorsese decided to use comes from Mean Streets, which he actually used and departed again later with Jack Nicholson with the cocaine scene in The Two Hookers, where he has one shot that is completely in red light. And in uh, Mean Streets as well, you'll have the Harvey Keitel character that is going to be completely engulfed in red light and I'm not, right. if I'm not mistaken he does use it again in uh, Goodfellas and then when Dirk Diggler comes into the bar and Jack Horner is sitting there with the the new guy yeah 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 it's completely drenched in red light again red so, light that's right it's kind of masterfully shot by Anderson as well because he has this Dutch tilt shot where the camera is just 
slightly askew, and that's usually an indication that something wrong is going to happen. Yeah, yeah, something that's disturbing not the frame. That. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That was one of my things. And the last one that I'm going to bring up that I really loved is the almost comedic slapstick altercation with Don Cheadle's character in the diner sequence at the end. Oh my that god. Kind of goes to the uh convenience store sequence in Taxi Driver where Robert De Niro's character Travis Bickle stops an armed robbery. Yeah, uh, by yeah. shooting a black man right there to help the, the store owner, you know, resolve the problem. Whereas Don Cheadle's character has the normal reaction of anyone would have, whereas Travis Bickle is not. He's just an insane guy who decides yeah, to yeah. shoot someone in a convenience store. You'll have the perfect reaction from Don Cheadle, but the way that the people are sh- like are shot is in a very comedic manner where you're like, oh, here's the gratuitous violence that Scorsese does, but I'm actually going to put a little bit of weight to it because we'll have a character in there that has no no right to be there oh, oh yeah it's it's this it's this beautiful contrivance this entire exactly. scene that the fact that he gets away it gets this money given to him like in a very pulp fictiony sense for like the uh yeah exactly you know by that sort of intervention very much like that it was so fun it was funny it was funny but at the same time i was like oh look at that scorsese killed the black guy in his movie and then anderson has the black guy surviving which yeah, i thought yeah. was really cool because usually the black guy in 70s movies was the first guy to go i, I so expect it just because I thought it was going to be trying to go for that exact exactly. vibe that was such a recurring theme at that time and that he exactly. just sidesteps it so neatly I was so grateful that sto- the story exactly. didn't go down that line I just didn't want to have to deal with it I really liked his character too I really liked Buck, oh, he was Buck so I just I, I refused to let him go you know <laughs> I think Buck is the most relatable character oh uh, he's so you know, earnest he, I love him he's lonely he is looking for a family he's looking for acceptance he embodies everything that we feel where he's looking for a connection right yeah because i mean from what i understood is that the characters in boogie nights are only as good as their environment allows them to be right sure. and so buck is just trying to transcend that trying to earn an honest living and he says it himself i'm an actor stop calling me a pornographer when he goes to the bank loan i am not a pornographer. i'm an actor this is my job i do this for a living like you're a banker and i thought yeah, that it was right. interesting for his arc to through a little bit of dishonesty was able to achieve his dream because that's what you need sometimes it's just a little handout and in that scene i think that that was i'll say a a god-like intervention the same way as in pulp fiction with jules and vincent where you're like that's a goddamn miracle these three guys are dead there's a sack of money i can go finally i'll be able to live my american dream and he literally is he's draped in the fucking american flag red white and blue opening (laughs) his store at the end of the movie out west in hollywood he's grateful for it it's it's brilliant so i don't know i have a couple more things i want to highlight but i'm gonna let you talk a little bit it's obvious that he does the whole uh you know the long take brain follow you into the crowd thing from the very start of the movie that uh was in goodfellas it's a scorsese staple you know yeah uh and he does it exactly right it's not about showing off the camera it's not about being overly flowing it's about narrating the scene without narration we don't need to be told it's character introduction it's era introduction it's it's area introduction you know like we get to know the bar we get to know the scene we get to know the place we get to know the people we get to know the locals we get to know the dialogue we get to know how flashy this is which isn't that flashy (laughs) and it kind of just settles into the plot neatly and that I don't really care like long long takes 
can be overdone and so on, but I, I, I'll, I'll take them any day over straightforward narration saying it was 1978 and we were all getting fucking high on coke and crazy times. The porn industry was booming, you know, like yeah, yeah. that's lazy. And this is, this is, this is filmmaking, you know, you can fucking exactly. tell stories in a million and one ways. This is the better way to do it. There you go. And I completely agree. It's a, supposed to be a visual medium. You're supposed to, your camera shots are supposed to communicate something. And that's why I think I love Anderson so much is because he actually uses the camera to tell his story. Right? Exactly, exactly. I'm positive that if you watch this movie on mute, you'd probably get something from it anyway. It wouldn't be uh, confusing. You'd understand yeah, what yeah. the fuck is going on. Definitely, definitely. The one last thing that I want to bring up before we close this uh, this, this gushing over yeah, yeah. is uh, the mid part of the film. My sure. Very much my favorite part of the movie. Just before that title card comes up, the mid part of the film is this giant party. And I think that when you talked about it earlier, this idea of a rise and fall, that midpoint of the movie is so perfect in terms of character development where you're at the tip of the mountain before the downfall starts yeah and mm-hmm. anderson shows you so well where these characters are and where they are headed because exactly. it's a combination of firsts and lasts right and what i mean by firsts and lasts is that you'll have i'll start with the firsts amber introduces dirk to cocaine for the first time so that's his mm-hmm. first time you'll also have hoffman's character philip seymour hoffman's character who tries to kiss dirk for the first time that's right then you're going to also have the lasts on the other side where william h macy's wife's character anyway the, the character she plays i don't remember her name she's been basically cheating on him for the entire movie and this is just the scene before he blows his brains out he catches her again so he decides that this is the last time he's going to put up with this thing and so that's the last time she's going to have sex this is the last time he's going to breathe it's the last time he's going to take it and it also culminates with the idea that it's the last time jack horner is going to be using film and it becomes a lesser medium by using videotape i loved how buck as well will make his first connection right and then you'll also have um the other the other black woman that's there uh, who makes her first real connection as well with another man uh who happens to have a i think he has a car business if i'm not mistaken so you'll have this combination of firsts and lasts that actually really act as this this peak in the movie for people that are actually going to start going down one way or uh, you know and this is basically the beginning of the end of the movie at the smack in the middle i guarantee you if you look at what the time code is i can guarantee you that is going to be almost as much time on one side as there is on the other almost certainly and i i thought that it was kind of cool that once the 80s kicks in it brings about this lesser work for all these characters that is going to arise the people that we've come to kind of not necessarily appreciate but we realize oh good god what what the hell is going to happen now you know dirt goes off in his weird crazy music career which i'm going to put a song on for us later (laughs) and i think that innocence is lost at that part of the film and like i said it's the beginning of the end for most characters and Anderson starts to show his cards where he's trying to say look not everything is perfect but there are characters that are doing their best to get out of it not everyone has the right way to go about it people are going to be going through a certain amount of purgatory there is a hell that is there as well and ultimately some characters are just not going to make it there's that right and it goes to play like there is a certain loneliness that's why I think the movie is a little bit about loneliness in these surrogate families you know where if you do not stay loyal to who you are or 
who actually was nice to you, then you're going to pay for it. But yeah. if you actually decide to embrace your loneliness, then you might actually find someone who's as lonely as you are and something beautiful might come of it, such as Buck's character who meets Buck's his character. wife yeah, exactly. and, and who becomes pregnant, you know, just I mean, even you can give a quick uh, like juxtaposition against um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character to Buck, you know, because he doesn't embrace his loneliness and his, you know, exactly. his sexuality outright. He just, he doesn't get that resolve that he kind of should deserve, you know, in yeah. the end, unfortunately. And that, that is, you know, it's, there are sad elements in this film that do stay sad, you know. Uh, I, 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 I do like this scene. It is very much like a, like what we know now as a, a general stage play sort of structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we get that solid culmination to the middle point and then we'll, di- we'll have our intermission. We'll get our break. We get our black title card and uh then we come back and then uh watch people ruin their lives <laughs> i mean watch the story watch the, the the culmination of the second act continue and see it lead to the inevitable third act where we get our resolves it's uh it's it's very traditional as a story it's something so fascinating about uh, anderson uh, as a filmmaker that i've gathered so far and i just I, I i would love to have been at that point where we kind of watch this and just being one of those people who stumble into what's just a weird film about porn maybe and that it turns out to be this such a competent such an easy to point to well that's going to be a classic someday right uh, you could just tell in its structure and, and its ability to tell its story from start to finish without any real justifiable blemishes right. that you're just looking at a, a great filmmaker in action and that's that's wonderful it's great and I'm glad that you brought up the structure as a last point because I've been wanting to just say this since the beginning sure and the structure of the film is that of an erection <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> isn't it. Isn't it pretty? It starts it's, off. It just works at so many levels. God damn this fucking film. <laughs> all the way up to the tip. And then once the best part has come out of these people, it goes all the way back down and it culminates with that shot in the mirror at the end. Of it. <laughs> That is how Boogie Nights is shaped. And I guarantee, now that you guys know that, you will not unsee it. <laughs> uh, incredible. Uh, that's it's brilliant. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> any further notes on Boogie Nights? No, man. I'm glad that we just finished with that. Uh, to me, like I said, I'm going to reiterate this every time we talk about one of his movies. Paul Thomas Anderson, to me, is, is the best working director right now. Boogie Nights uh, took me a little while to appreciate because um, I, I wasn't mature enough, I think, when it came out the first time. I saw it when I was 18. Sure. And I was like, what the hell is this? Why is Marky Mark in a movie? I didn't understand. You know? Yeah. That's what <laughs> I mean. Like, when was that, a has-been, you know? I, I from, like, that, the from the perspective of audiences, audiences seeing it at the day, I, 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 I struggled to get my head around what, how you could possibly prepare for this, you know? So I totally am fascinated by that. And I mean, with time, this this movie has become a, a, a classic for me. It's not a movie that I rewatch uh, a lot, like, for the same reasons you do. I'm like, I, I know enough about it. I, I It's not something that I take a lot of pleasure in watching because watching people's pain is not necessarily something yeah yeah you are that you, that something that you want to, to put yourself through often exactly. yeah like, exactly. yeah this is great i'm gonna have popcorn and watch this there's no yeah, way watch you know? some guy be miserable for two hours <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing i mean this is what the difference is between watching uh, a competent filmmaker make a film uh, versus you know other people that are just making movies this is sure. the clear difference for me uh, when you're able to make a movie about this particular subject matter and make it interesting yeah definitely compelling you know so that's it i don't know is there anything else you wanted to add i'm just happy that we've gotten to the through our initial stage of the uh the scorsese
Scorsese stage in this evolution of Anderson. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our next one in two weeks. All right. So I have homework for you. Mm. If you're going to watch Magnolia, do yourself a favor and watch Robert Altman's Shortcuts. Okay. So watch yep. Shortcuts and then we'll be able to talk about how the influence of Shortcuts plays very heavily into Magnolia. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture. I like it a lot. And great, so that's great. it. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for tuning in to episode 10 of the ASC podcast. Hey, uh, a decade, a decade of episodes in the making. <laughs> My name is Jason Michael. You can find me at film underscore faculty on Twitter and also at film uh, faculty on WordPress. We have a bunch of stuff there, reviews that you guys can check out. I'm going to be trying to write a little bit more because Lee's putting a little bit more pressure on me. <laughs> and that's it. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, and yeah, please, you know, if you guys have time, go send a, send a review in on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback on uh, on uh, the show. Uh, we also are using SoundCloud because to me there was a wonderful medium so that you guys can comment on the tracks. I would love to see you guys interact with the tracks so that you can uh, give us some more feedback there and create a discussion. Uh, big shout out to the guys at In Session Film. Uh, again, thank you guys for uh, retweeting all of our stuff. Uh, yeah. And, and to Nerd on Nerd Podcast, uh, to Yuche, and also to uh, Courtney Young over at uh, Film Vibes, you know, on screen review. Uh, wonderful person to interact with on Twitter. Give those people a follow. If I forgot someone, I won't forget you next time, and I'm going to lend the mic over to Lee. Yeah, well, I would say uh, one, maybe, Maddie Neggs as well. He, uh, oh, shit. Sorry, Maddie. <laughs> re- retweets uh, almost everything I throw at him, so I always appreciate that. It's, Maddie, it's yeah, great. absolutely. Wonderful guy. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I've been Lee Brady. Uh, I write for the and over the website uh, Big Picture Reviews. And you can see that at bigpicturereviews.co.uk. I do modern reviews along with a team. You can also see me on Twitter, at BigPickReviews. Hopefully you'll tune in uh, next time. Pass the Tom Cruise, if that's not your boat. We'll be doing more Anderson three weeks from now. So on that note, this is us signing off. Take care. Have a good one. Bye. Conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.